Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields related to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of the important issues of our times. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWANTTOSAVESEEDS.COM and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how to save your own. Today in this bonus podcast, we have our seed expert, Bill McDormand, to share some seed wisdom and discuss thoughts and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us who are saving seeds. Welcome to the show today, Bill. Hello, Greg. How are you? It's so nice to be back. So tonight we're talking about sourcing seeds. Tell me about that. Well, where do you get them? Ask yourself the most profound question you can ask. How do I get the best seeds to plant in my garden? You know, if you think about what most people spend for seeds, about 98% of the time, energy and money they put into their gardens goes into the garden. But the seeds, if you get the wrong ones, you've wasted all of that. So it becomes a really important thing to think about. I mean, you only get once. I mean, if you live in the Sonoran Desert, you get two or three times a year, but most people only get one shot at it. That's what we're going to talk about tonight as a backyard gardener, as a member of a family, as the member of a community, as the member of a modern society in the 21st century. How do you get the best seeds? for your garden. A lot of responsibility there if you think about it. A friend of mine one time said, when you choose a cultivar, when you choose your seeds, you're choosing an entire agricultural system that's behind underneath that seed that produced it, that got it to you. You know, you could be putting your time and energy and money into all sorts of things you don't understand. In fact, most of us do. So I got to play around in the seed industry. Well, I owned a company for 28 years and so I got to see a lot of it and I still Still didn't learn all of it. It's kind of a big, dark, scary place. I learned enough to pass on some tricks, I think, tonight to some of the gardeners. 
Cool. And we had a conversation sometime in the last couple of three months. And I just want to do a shout out to this conversation. And I can't remember where we had it at, but it was about a term that you introduced me to. And I knew this term from my time at Arizona State University when I was getting my botany degree. And this term is an important term, but I didn't overlay this term on what I was doing until you pointed it out to me. Are you wondering what the term is? Bill? Yeah, I am. Let me give you a little bit more data here. So I came to you and I said, Bill, I have these seeds that have grown here at the urban farm for multiple generations. I have two different varieties of seeds, the cowpeas and the parsley that have been coming up in my yard for, I would say, at least a decade. So those are annuals. They go to flower, they plant themselves every year, and they come up. And I have them now growing wild in my landscape. And I was looking for a term for that. And you use the term, drum roll please, land race. It didn't even occur to me that what I would be doing here could be considered a land race. Can you define the term for us? You know, it's hard to define terms like that. If you look in the literature, and I'm talking about plant breeding literature and papers and books written when plant breeding was just getting started in the 20s, the uh-huh. 30s, the 40s, the term land race appears first as a derogatory term for those varieties that we're going to leave behind now, mm-hmm. now that we're scientists. Now that we have proper breeding techniques, we understand Gregor Mendel and genetics, we can quickly improve things and we can just leave those dirty old land races behind. And so that's how it sort of appears first in the literature. What we've come to understand is that those are the true treasures. If you just flip the whole thing on its head for a second and look at what those guys got to start with. Sure, the breakthroughs in the Green Revolution genetically have been magnificent, and we've doubled and tripled, even 10x the yield in some of our modern crops by understanding genetics and using modern breeding techniques. However, a lot of scientists argue, including some great modern plant breeders, that most of the actual plant breeding was done up to that point to give those Ah. guys material to work with. If you think about it, humanity was eating wild plants only mostly 10,000 years ago. And it was only by continually saving seeds and probably ritual, probably done mostly by women, that we were able to slowly but surely improve crops like chiltepines into our modern chilies or teosinte into our modern corn. I mean, nothing that we eat today or very little of it looks like the wild plant that it came from. Yeah, I think even Dr. Nabin says that 98% of all the plant breeding ever done was done before 1900 and before the rediscovery of Gregor Mendel. Then let's come back to our definition then. We were left with these varieties that have been hand-selected for hundreds of generations for specific cultural and most importantly, ecological characteristics. They saved the seeds from the things that worked best where they were. And that's where the word land is active in the definition of land race. They are Mm -hmm. place-based. You know, for us, to try to reopen this place-based idea of breeding because it allows us to use fewer inputs. It allows us to save seeds from things that work for us like you experienced in your own yard with ease, right? I mean, you're saving your parsley seed wasn't really difficult, was it? No. Honestly, <laughs> besides the ones that I give away every year 
at our seed up, which we're going to talk about here in a little while. I just spread the seeds liberally in the yard and they come up where they come up. Same with the cow peas and nasturtiums and lettuce. And, you know, there's multiple other things. I've got onions that come up year after year. And so they just magically manage themselves out so I don't have to do it. They're easy. And that's because they have adapted themselves a bit to your local environment. And that's what we're looking for now. We realize that we can't just go on and change the planet and level it and give it the right amount of water and the right amount of chemicals to keep away all the pests and fortify the soil or whatever without there being consequences, you know, things like dead zone, things like millions of acres of pesticide-resistant weeds now. I mean, nature is batting last. Farmers are now coming back going, wow, you know what? My grandfather was actually a really great farmer. He never did get the yield, but he was able to get something valuable every year, you know, by having things that were more diverse on his farm, both in the kinds of things he grew and in diversity in each variety. And that's where we get back to land races. Lots of them have built-in diversity for all of that adversity that those plants have come to understand in that particular place. I just last week had the great honor, I'll call it, of spending a few days with Dr. John Navazio, who is one of the plant breeders at Johnny's Selected Seeds. And John's an old friend of mine, and we hadn't seen each other for a while. He came down and helped us with a seed school we were teaching at Sterling College. He was the first graduate student in plant breeding at the University of Wisconsin-Madison that was organic, the first person to come through there that was breeding especially for organic systems. Think about that. Let's get away from the chemicals. Let's go back to the land the way it is with our own methods of fertility and bug control. And let's breed and select things for that environment. In a sense, that's what land races were all along. And the surprising thing he said, and I think this is really important for all of us to understand, is that we had huge amounts of research creating new strains of land races clear up into the 60s that companies like Heinz that were doing ketchup and hunts especially up into Canada, were still breeding their own varieties of open-pollinated tomatoes and other vegetables for their products. And that some of that material is still out there. When I first got into this, I thought, oh, they sort of slammed the door shut after World War II and all that stuff. The plant breeding industry went to hybrids. You know, it's going to be really difficult to dehybridize them. We're left with a handful of land races that are in the nation's seed catalogs. But other than that, we don't have a lot to work with. It was John that double clicked on that for me and really opened my eyes to the fact that there may be way more material out there that was still being produced and refined way later in the 20th century and that um, it's Christmas time. So I want to get back to sourcing our seeds. The reason I brought up that land race piece is because that's one way of doing it. Grow your own seeds out year after year after year until it becomes something that just grows wild in your space. Right. But if you're going to do that, you want to start with the best seeds. Again, that gets back to my question at the beginning of the program. How do you get the best seeds to start with? Especially if you're starting on that long-term vision of rematriating seeds to a place and a culture, as Rowan Wright so eloquently says. So it becomes even more of a responsibility. So where do you find those seeds? This is all leading back. You know where all this is going. This is leading back to the Great American Seed Up, which Greg and I have been working on now for, what, this will be our fifth one? Is that right? Our fifth one. So let me paint a picture for everybody out there what the Great American Seed Up is. And let me give a little bit of history. I won't take more than a couple, three hours here. Just kidding. So about 2012, I looked at the land 
landscape of Phoenix, which is 4.4 million people. And I really discovered that there was no seed bank, no public seed bank, no private seed bank that I knew of here in the Phoenix metropolitan area. So I decided to do something about it. And I made a deal with my friend, Bill McDormand. And we were able to source a couple thousand dollars worth of like 70 different varieties of seeds. And I bought a freezer and I stuck them in that freezer. That's one of the ways to store seeds is in a freezer. So I basically created my own seed bank. But the following couple of years after that, it really didn't satisfy my need. And my need was to figure out how to make the Phoenix metropolitan area, 4.4 million people, a seed secure place. And what might that look like? So Bill and Bell and Heidi and I were off on the beach four years ago. Yes. And my recollection, Bill, is that we started this conversation as we were basically walking out the door. It's amazing what a week on the beach, you know, in Mexico to relax will do for you. Because yeah. we started thinking clearly right at the end. <laughs> right. All week. I don't know who did it or what, but basically what we said was, what if we created a room with 70 different varieties of seeds and let people scoop them up in a bulk box? What might that look like? How would we do it? And this was Thanksgiving time. And we actually threw our first great American seed up in April. So it's like, what, six months later? You're a do it kind of guy. I had learned about this idea from the Idaho Stake, it's called. The Mormon Church in central Idaho wanted their area seed secure. And they couldn't figure out how to do it. And they didn't have enough money to buy packets for everybody. 90% of the cost of a packet of seeds or more is the packaging. Yeah. There's rarely more than three or four cents worth of seeds in a seed packet. Right. So they are the ones that figured out if they bought bulk from me, if I source bulk seeds for them through my company, Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens, on a Sunday when everybody was at church, they put them in big bowls and they put blank packets out and pens and they had little signs up with the instructions and the names of the varieties. And everybody filled out their own envelopes and scooped some seeds into their own packet. Wow. And that way they used their own, you know, elbow grease in a sense to get all these seeds packaged and make their whole area seed secure at a price they could afford. So that was the original idea. And that's what we were talking about on the beach. And then you said, oh, we're going to do this. It was amazing. Basically, the idea that if you go to greatamericanseedup.org, there's a video there. The video starts with 10 seconds of me being outrageously foolish about seeds. But you can see what the Great American Seed Up looks like. And there is nothing like like having 300 people in a room all scooping up seeds. The energy is palpable. This is a delivery mechanism, Bill. It's not a sourcing process for the seeds. So let's go back to your question. Where do we find the seeds at? Well, that's the question. In a perfect world, we want to make Phoenix seed secure. We would find 70 things that are raised in southern Arizona in the desert. These are varieties that are already been grown there their whole lives, you know, our whole lives and have been adapted. They've gone through systematic trials. I mean, that's what the University of Arizona was set up to do as a land-grant college. And the Great Maricopa Agricultural Center that's about 35 miles north of Tucson was a new $50 million center to do that. Even in the 60s, find desert adapted varieties for everybody and then release them to the public. And then the story shifted, as we all know. I think the Bayh-Dole Act, as it's known, encouraged publicly funded universities to begin to trademark and patent, to gain intellectual property over what they were 
producing. Uh-huh. So whereas university used to release seeds to the public for free, I think some of the last great varieties were out at Oregon State University, things like Oregon Sugar Pod Peas. Instead of that happening, they started just signing contracts with large companies and those quickly became biotech companies and pretty soon everything was patented. So that whole supply line got cut off. So, you know, we're 20 or 30 years in now with nothing being done for us in the desert. Many of the varieties that people used to know about have disappeared. Some of them are right. seed saving groups and, you know, I would say some of them now have been reintroduced into the seed library system in southern Arizona, especially at the one in Tucson, which checked out 28,000 packets of seeds in 2016, wow. just to give you a sense of the scale of how mm-hmm. people are starting to find and share their own seeds again. But for an event like the Great American Seed Up in Phoenix, we don't have that. I guess that's what I'm coming around to. There is no place to go buy those seeds or to find them or to trade for them or to get people mm-hmm. to donate them. They just don't exist. So plan B then becomes find the best seeds. Those land races with the most diversity still in them, being grown by really good farmers, hopefully in organic ways, even if it's not always certified organic because many Mm -hmm. farmers are going beyond that. But to find those seeds that fit our needs best that we can get in bulk at a price so that we can all get started again and start reengaging in that process and saving our own seeds. So from the very beginning, when we started talking about this, Greg, you know, it is a Costco of seeds. It's a big, you know, pop-up seed mart in a way. But the idea is not to have people come every year and get their seeds. That was never our original intention. Our intention is to make seeds secure. And the way to do that is to teach them how to save their own seeds from those that they're scooping out of these buckets. And so that's why we run classes through the whole event. And I think that adds a really important, if not the most important part to this whole thing, is that with a handful of seeds, maybe you already have some of your own seeds at home. But what will really make us secure is for everybody to re-engage and start readapting these varieties to right where we are. And this is our fifth one. People are starting to do it. We're starting to find more seeds that are adapted to the desert. You know, this year we're going to have Punta Banda tomatoes which are almost growing wild. And it's unique genetically, at least in the circles I've been checking. Its fruit will set even in 100 plus degree temperatures. Wow. That's a big problem for people in Phoenix in the summers. You know, everybody kind of goes through this period where there's just no tomatoes because it's too hot. And that's explained because it either parches the pollen or just dries the whole sexual reproductive parts of the flower up. It's just too hot. Things don't work at that temperature. But with Punta Banda, it does. We just went through the hottest, you know, May and June, I remember, here in Cornville. And uh, Punta Banda has the most tomatoes in any tomato plant I have. In fact, it was the first tomatoes I got out my garden this year. And that's the kind of thing that we're always on the lookout for that we want to start passing around. So for people that want to fly into Phoenix or if you live in the <laughs> Phoenix metropolitan area, you know, the Great American Seed Up is a great place to come for incredible seeds. But there's a lot of our listeners that are elsewhere in the country and elsewhere in the world. So what do we do for them? We've talked about being able to take this show on the road, so to speak. I mean, there's no reason why with a little bit of background work, this couldn't be put together in other places, especially now that we've figured out sort of the delivery technology. I mean, it seems like a pretty easy idea. You get a big room, you set up tables, and you put seeds and buckets on them. Let me tell you, there's a lot to learn. How many volunteers do we have? Usually about 50. 50 volunteers. And then four of us that sort of came together to partner in this thing, my wife, Belle, and then Kari, and you, Greg, we meet six or eight times a year, at Mm -hmm. least. 
ironing out details. I mean, it's taken a lot sure. of work to get this thing to work. And that part we could, you know, write down and duplicate. We can tell people how to set that part up. Right. Then the hard part becomes sourcing the seeds for each region. And that would take some specialized, you know, yeah. intervention. Which Somebody who is- knows something about the seed business. We have you. You know something about the seed <laughs> business. So that's one place I wanted to go with this. We have the systems and technology set up to be able to host or have you host, if you're out there listening, a Great American Seed Up where you're at. So that's one possibility. But for those people that don't want to do something as big as a thousand person seed up, you can also do a hundred person seed up. You know, it's scalable like that. But looking outside of the Great American Seed Up, you know, somebody in Santa Fe, New Mexico or Boise, Idaho or Asheville, North Carolina, they want to get seeds. What are their choices? Where do they look? (laughs) More than ever now, there are small regional seed companies starting to reappear, you know, all over the country. There are seed exchanges that are starting to happen, CD Saturdays, there are seed libraries that, you know, some estimates three to four hundred seed libraries now in the United States. Those are all well and good for a relatively small number of new people to get involved in a relatively small number of seeds. In other words, those things are set up for backyard gardeners in small amounts. Right. I think where the seed up is different is that you start thinking about how can we get our whole city seed secure, you know? And after watching the news today, maybe that's a good idea in some yeah. areas, Mike. God, the smoke and all the flooding and all the stuff going on has got people thinking about this. You're right. It comes down to how do you get 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 people up and running in a relatively short period of time? And I think that's where the seed up idea comes in. You know, I don't think I ever, and I don't think you did either, you know, conceive of this as something that would replace those other things in place. And there's so many great new things springing up so that you can get actual seeds that were saved last year right in your neighborhood. That's where I go when I try to find the best seeds for me because the best thing that seeds have to offer is that they're adaptable, you know, that they dance with you through a season and through ways that are conscious or even unconscious, there's selection taking place. And some of those changes are reinserted into their DNA and only certain traits are passed on to the next year. Mm -hmm. So if you buy your seeds every year from somewhere else and you don't even know where they came from, you've given up that opportunity the best of what a seed has to offer. Whereas if you look around and try to find seeds that have already been grown and there's a story about exactly where it was grown and what it was selected for in your neighborhood or in your city or in your region, then you're taking advantage of that adaptability. And we're marching our way back into having land races that take less inputs, that have less impact on our environments to grow the food that we need as a human community that will lower our carbon footprint and get us out of this damn cycle that's making things hotter and worse every year. All that downline starts to happen when you choose the right kind of seed. That's what we're trying to do with this. We are working on a way for people in other parts of the country to have great American seed ups. Correct me if I'm wrong, Greg. We're working on it so people could do larger ones in city areas or scale it down to smaller ones. We're working on getting all of our instructions together in a manual Mm -hmm. and we're getting together we would probably have some bulk seeds that you could get directly from us. Maybe have instructions where you could fill in or how you could fill in others. And it is a pretty scalable thing, I would think. 
And I think it's going to get popular. That's just right. my guess. I don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking that's the case, absolutely. You know what? I just want three packets of seeds for my area. Say you ended up in Asheville, North Carolina. Where are you going to start? How are you going to get, you know, three or four or five packets of seeds? I would start looking to see if there were any seed exchanges or seed libraries first in your area. Because even if you can't get exactly what you're looking for in the seeds through there, say there's not another seed exchange till next fall and you're ready to plant now, it'll put you in touch with people that will know how to find things that probably do have seeds to share. You can go to seedlibraries.net which is a website run by our dear friend Rebecca Newburn, who's largely responsible for many of the seed libraries getting started in the United States because her little button on that site still that says how to start your own seed library. Under one of the menus is sister seed libraries, and she updates and keeps up a list. And they're by state. You can go down and look and see if there's any seed libraries in North Carolina. So that's another place to start to look. I mean, for people that are moving to the Mountain West, you know, my wife and I are directors of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. You can go to Rocky Mountain seeds.org and under our resources you can find a directory for seed businesses, seed libraries, seed teachers and for our seed stewards. We have I think 284 seed stewards now and these are people that have dedicated themselves in our Mountain West region to growing and saving and sharing seeds to at least one thing and you can pull up the directory and lots of times they'll tell you what they're saving or what their experience is and you can even pull up a map on our site and just look at the map and find people close to you and click on their thing and then all of their contact information comes up automatically and you're connected. That's another thing and I see more and more of those sorts of things coming. Find your local seed people. One person who's kind of been involved in this or started a seed library or is the central point at a seed exchange can be invaluable if you first move to a town and kind of get you up in speed because trust me, this is a movement. This may be the most powerful grassroots movement in our country since the 60s. It's underground. It doesn't get into the mainstream media a lot. Thank goodness, probably, because there's a lot of misunderstandings about it, but it's growing and people are taking it very seriously. All of the people, you know, it's hard to say all, but I can't think of an exception of the people that I've been put in touch with, especially in the last 10 years that are running in these circles are all extraordinary people. You know, and I keep trying to figure out why that is. So I come up with something like, you know, it's hard. I mean, most people don't know where their food comes from at all. Right. You know, it comes from the grocery store. But you know, beyond <laughs> that, they don't know where it comes from. Once you start to double click on that a little bit, and so many of us have because of our health, because of our gut problems or our mm-hmm. gluten problems or whatever they are, we start to find out where our food comes from. And then a very small subset of those people keep double clicking and find out where the seeds come from that grow that local food. And so when you spend the time and have the intelligence to peel all those onion layers off and get down into the center where the seeds are, wow, the people that are all down in there are all quite extraordinary. You know, I've found a lot of really great seeds over the years and I've been gifted a lot and I've got gotten caught up in, you know, the development of some. I just saw Glass Gem Corn on the front cover of the whole seed catalog, you know, my local supermarket. And I can't help but reflect on that because I was the guy who named it Glass Gem. Every place you see the word Glass Gem, I know where that started is all. You know, it wasn't my corn. It was a gift. You know, mm-hmm. it came through a great corn breeder, Carl Barnes. He was half Cherokee and his student, Greg Shane, was 
shepherded it, who is still stewarding this magical being, I'll call it. You know, and all that happened, but I happened to be the guy that opened up the file folder on a Macintosh computer that was called Glass Gym and looked through all the pictures and found a picture of one of them. And I go, oh, I found one of these pictures of your thing. Is it called Glass Gym, Greg? And he goes, no, not really. That was just the name of the folder. But if you think that that particular corn should be called Glass Gym, Glass Gym it is. That's where it all came from. So I've had a lot of opportunities in my life to be a part of these sorts of things. But the best part has been the people over and over. I'm just blown away by the quality of people. So for no other reason, come down to the great American seat of just to be around really cool people. That's what I would say. And then all the rest of it's bonus. Think about this, Greg. I know this is one of those flippant ideas on the beach. We're just getting in the car. Seed security for Phoenix. What if they let us keep doing these seed ups? For the next five years, Phoenix will be different as far yeah. as measuring its seed security. There will be thousands of people that have gone through seed saving classes and have their own open pollinated seeds that are somewhat, if not totally adapted to where they live and have the will and the confidence to start saving their own seeds. Wow. That's the kind of city I want to live in in the future. You know, that's a really powerful thought. Right. So some resources I've just kind of brainstorming through here. You said seedlibraries.org. Seedlibraries.net. Yeah, that's the one you want. And I I found cdsunday.org, and that's over in Europe, I believe. You know, the CD Saturday started in Canada. Oh, did it? Yeah, and let me just pull it up. I can find another resource for you. There's a new network. It's called the Community Seed Network. which came out of an idea that was launched at the International Seed Library Conference in Tucson. People that actually showed up from seven countries and seed librarians there from all over. And we all met around a big table and decided to form some sort of an organization. And that met by phone. It met in person a couple of times. One time at the Seed Savers Exchange picnic in Decorah, Iowa. Bella and I were there with people from all over the country. And that morphed into an offer from Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah and USC Canada, which is a great conservation organization in Canada, to actually host a website for all the seed libraries. So that's called the Community Seed Network, I believe. And it didn't come up quite right for me, but I'll get you their URL also. So CD Sunday is out of Europe. CD Saturday is out of Canada. And that's seeds.ca out of Canada, it looks like. The Community Seed Network is just that, communityseednetwork.org. Perfect. There's a really lot of great resources on there, and you can see all the seed libraries on their map that have signed up around the country. So, any parting thoughts, my friend? You know, just be careful. You know, I think we're waking up as consumers, at least around my neighborhood here, realizing that we really have a lot more power than we think we do. And much of that power comes down to our dollars. I got to see Ken Meter from the Crossroads Resource Center in Minneapolis a couple of weeks ago, and he's the guy who came up with the program for us in southern Arizona, that if we all shifted $5 a week more to local food, that we would shift $300 million back into the local economy. You know, and that includes Tucson, which is the sixth poorest city in the United States now. I mean, just a tremendous amount of money. It's almost $2 billion a year we spend in just food to feed ourselves. And 98% of that in Arizona leaves the state. If we just spent a little more on local food, we could start bringing that back. The reason he said only shift $5 more is we don't have the local food. We don't have the infrastructure, you know. We would crash 
the things we have. So we have to start slowly to come back. And then I would just emphasize then underneath that how important it is to have the seeds. Because, folks, we don't have local seeds. Almost all of the seeds being grown for any local agriculture in our region, the regions that I've been around, are all coming from somewhere else, thousands of miles away. It's not unusual for them to be contracted in China, especially certified organic seed. You know, in this day and age, is that really what you want to base your local agriculture on? Certified organic seeds that are now patented and that are being grown in China? I mean, that really sounds like a great system. You have a tremendous amount of power if you just ask that question, how can I get the best seeds? And how can I spend my dollars on local food? And I think if more and more of us wake up and start doing that, we're going to see a tremendous shift really quickly. And I think we are. And in that, we'll start to meet some really great people, as I said before. I'm kind of excited about it. I get really depressed about some of the news. But, you know, all in all about all these tools and what we have. And now that we see a path forward, you know, it's exciting. Yay. So we have a couple of questions here. John from Ridgefield, Washington says, I planted black beans that I saved from last year. Yay, John. It is early, but the seeds look fully formed and the plants are turning brown. Is it okay to pick them and let them dry on screens? The pods are brown. Yeah, normally it is. Rule of thumb, leave them on the vines as long as possible. If there's birds or bugs or frost or rain or something that's going to attack your seed crop, by all means, you want to bring it in. But what I try to do, especially with beans, is pull the whole vines. And I bring those in and put them on tarps. And that way, mm-hmm. any energy that's left in the roots and the stems or whatever that can help finish those seeds at whatever stage they're at. And you really don't know. And there'll be variation in it. You're at least giving yourself the best shot you got. Karen from Glendale says, I love the seed up and have had great luck with the seeds I have purchased there. Now we will be leaving the Phoenix area and moving south of Prescott. And we'll need to rethink our growing season. What do you recommend? Should I try the seeds I already have or start over? That will be at 5,000 foot elevation. That's about your elevation, isn't it, Bill? Yeah, but you know, we're starting to be more like Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) It was really hot here for a while. My guess is that I would try the seeds you have first. And maybe that's something else I haven't been talking about. But before we find our favorite heirloom, our new land race that, you know, is going to be famous in our neighborhood that we've grown every year for 20 five years or 35 years like Molly Beverly's garlic over there in Prescott. And by the way, if you get to Prescott, ask around for Molly. She's head of Prescott Slow Foods. She's got garlic. <laughs> and that's where I'm getting some of mine this year. And it's been adapted to there for, I think it's over 30 years. I may be getting the numbers wrong. Ask around for people that have local stuff, but we may have to try a lot of stuff. So I would bring your seats and try them. If you don't get satisfaction or you want to get some others and try those too, you know, the more that we can set up even more systematic trials to actually see what works best, the better off we're all going to be. And maybe we can organize this in clubs at the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. We're even talking about organizing a larger experiment station where systematic trials could be done for a whole region. Again, the way they used to be done at experiment stations by the land grant. Excellent. Well, Bill, thank you so very much for joining us once again. You know, it's been, oh man, has it been three or four years since we've been doing Seed School Online and having our chats? 
Yeah, you know, it's going pretty fast. I keep hearing great things back about Seed School Online. It's doing its job out there. And we at the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, we can bring a seed school in a day to your town. We go where we're pulled. We just did a six-day one in Vermont even. Again, our overall aim is to get as many people up and running around their seed systems as we can while we can. And I feel this sort of urgency about it. And so if you feel that, want to start organizing your town. And we're starting to do something new too, Greg, where people are doing their own. We've trained now 70 seed school teachers. I know, isn't that great? And now they're starting to do their own seed schools in a day. And actually, I'm going to get to Skype in to one coming up this fall. So I still get to, you know, look in and see everybody and say hi. It's really great. And again, maybe make some connections with some of these great Perfect. people. So Perfect. all of that's at RockyMountSeeds.org. Perfect. And if you go to Seed Saving Hacked, H-A-C-K-E-D, hacked.com, there is a free pre-recorded webinar called Seed Saving Hack, Why Seeds Matter, Why Saving Them is Easy, and How to Save Your Own. So you can plug in there, and then we'll send you information about Seed School Online. If you are interested in attending the Great American Seed Up or finding out more about hosting your own Great American Seed Up, greatamericanseedup.org. Take a look at the videos and check it out. Shoot us an email. You can always shoot me an email, greg at urbanfarm.org. Let's chat. Let's talk about having fun with getting the seed word out. Thank you very much, Mr. McDormand, for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for spending an hour out of your evening and talking about seeds. Thank you, thank you. And as I always like to say, farm out. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you, you think. It starts with farm. saving your own seeds you and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how to save your own. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, if you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.